0: This is the Dialogue Journal podcast series.
1: Hello, and welcome to the first ever podcast of Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. I'm Morris Thurston, Chair-Elect of the Dialogue Board of Directors, and with me today is Dr. David E. Campbell, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Notre Dame and Founding Director of the Rooney Center for the Study of American Democracy, David is the co-author, along with Robert Putnam, of American Grace, How Religion Divides and Unites Us. This book received the 2011 Woodrow Wilson Award from the American Political Science Association for the best book on government, politics, or international affairs. I'd like to read a couple of comments from the dust jacket of the book. One is from Doris Kearns Goodwin, who most of our listeners will recognize as author of Team of Rivals, The Political Genius of Abraham Lincoln, a great book. Ms. Goodwin writes, American grace is a monumental work, an elegant narrative built on a solid foundation of massive research. This surprising, absolutely fascinating, and ultimately uplifting portrait of the changing role of religion in American life deserves the widest possible audience. It is a triumph. And then the other one I'd like to read is by Alan Dershowitz, one of my former law professors at Harvard Law School and who has done a number of things and is fairly well known to most people. Professor Dershowitz writes, This remarkable book does to religion what the Kinsey Report did to sex. Document, dissect, and assess the role religion broadly defined to include disbelief and uncertainty, plays in our national experience. Whether you are a fundamentalist or atheist or anything in between, this book matters because religion matters. Those are some pretty impressive comments and credentials, Dave.
0: (laughs) Well, it's probably just as important to note that I'm a longtime Dialogue subscriber.
1: Wonderful. Well, we're hoping (laughs) that uh, most of those who listen to this podcast will become subscribers if they're not already. Before we get to talk on our main subject, which is going to be not only how religion unites and divides us in the United States, but also, uh, since we are a, a Journal of Mormon Thought, we want to explore what makes Mormons unique in comparison to other religions. Of course, we're talking mainly about the political ecosphere, not necessarily the religious or, or philosophical area. First, a little bit of background, Dave. Where did you grow up?
0: I grew up in the bustling metropolis of Medicine Hat, Alberta, Canada, which I always say is bigger than it sounds.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know how how big it sounds. What made you... What what caused you to be there? I mean, your family <laughs> was there for a reason.
0: Right. Well, there is a... A swath of southern Alberta, Canada, that is, uh, you know, essentially the Mormon corridor, settled by Mormons, you know, sent there by Brigham Young. Medicine Hat, my hometown, is actually outside of the Mormon corridor, and so I don't have the genealogical link, you know, to the pioneers who came north to settle uh, there in in Alberta. But I did grow up in an environment where there were a fair number of Latter-day Saints. So my uh, family, actually on both sides, my mom and my dad, uh, their families came to that part of Canada because farmland was freely available. And uh, over the years, both sides of the family moved away from farming, as is so often the case, and now do other things.
1: Okay. What did your dad do?
0: My father actually worked for the uh, Canadian Department of Defense. And I don't want to uh, detect any snickers when I say that. <laughs> uh, there's a, a Canadian military base not far from my hometown, and it's actually where both the Canadians and the British do their tank training. So I actually grew up in a very interesting uh, environment because you know, I was... Canadian, but we were you know, in a community with a lot of British soldiers, and so if you talk to anybody in the British Army, uh, they almost always have spent some time in my hometown because they all come there to be trained. There's a lot more land in Canada than Britain to run tanks around and blow things up.
1: How did you get interested in uh, political
0: science and all of that? Was that something that as a child was
1: interesting to you? Or?
0: You know, I was always interested in politics as a child, not because my parents were especially political, more because I think I was just interested in the world. And then it probably also helped that I was a newspaper carrier, pretty young. The hometown paper uh, that I delivered it was uh, an afternoon paper, not in the morning, so I was able to do it right after school. In those days, you know, I could do it as a pretty young kid. I was still in sixth or seventh grade when I was delivering uh, newspapers, and I kind of, kind of caught the bug. Actually, of you know, I would deliver the paper, but I would read it as I was delivering it, and that sort of whet my appetite for this sort of thing. And then when I went to college. I didn't think I was going to study political science, I you know, was going to do something more practical, but the more courses I took, the more I realized that really it was the political science classes that I was most interested in, and so I was off to the races. <laughs>
1: I, You know, I have a kind of a similar background. I was very interested in political science when I was younger, and I actually majored in political science in college, but I remember as a senior in high school getting, I liked history too, and that of course ties in a lot with poli-sci, mm-hmm. and... I remember getting the, uh, the history book for my senior year in high school and reading it like a novel. It was modern world history and the world wars and all of that. And I, I read the thing in the first week and a half of school, which was very unusual for, for kids. Were you, were you just kind of fascinated in that when you were younger? Uh,
0: it, very much the same way. And then I also did, when I was in high school, I did debate And that also gave me an opportunity to learn a lot about public policy and then engage in, you know, obviously the back and forth that debate involves. And I was very fortunate because the young people I associated with when I was in high school all through Western Canada in the days that I was doing debate, many of them have now gone on and become quite well-known themselves. Like the current mayor of the city of Calgary is a guy my age, pretty young. And I knew him when he was, you know, this high school kid who would debate and now he's like the star of the Canadian political establishment and there are other people I knew who've gone on to do similar things
1: now in your book American Grace you mentioned in there that you and your co-author had a mix of religious backgrounds which makes I think it interesting because you can approach the study of religions from a number of different angles and I think maybe if you took just a minute and told us about that at our, our listeners would find that interesting as well. Uh,
0: So the first thing to know about the book, American Grace, is one of the themes throughout the book is the way in which Americans build relationships, both through their friendships and through their families, um, across religious lines, so that most Americans today, almost all Americans, have close friends and even family members who are of another faith. And in laying that story out, uh, both my co-author and I decided that it would be informative to let readers know that both of us actually have that kind of background ourselves. So in the case of my co-author, um, he was raised a Methodist in Port Clinton, Ohio, uh, kind of had your stereotypical uh, leave-it-to-beaver kind of you know experience growing up in the 50s, and then converted to Judaism uh, when he married his uh, now wife, and then their children have gone on and married spouses of other faiths. So they have this very... religiously diverse uh, family and then in my case um, I'm LDS and actually my parents are both LDS now but they were not at the time that they married my mom was a member of the church but my dad was not so I have a memory of my father joining the church I was young but it was after a number of years of marriage um, and so, therefore, our extended family actually have a lot of non-members, even on my mom's side, because my mom was also a convert just as a, at a very young age. So her parents joined the church. She also did when she was 10 or 11 or something. But if you sort of look at some of her siblings and then cousins and such, uh, some are LDS, some are not. So if you get the whole group together, we have a real religious mix.
1: And I think that must have kind of helped you to... Well, one of the things that you mentioned in your book was how, in America today, religions are, are are the merging between religions, going from one to the other, is becoming quite prevalent. And that your families were sort mm-hmm. of a testament to that. Is that? Tell us a little bit more about that finding.
0: Um, as of, of Americans today, somewhere between thirty and forty percent of all Americans have switched religions at some point in their lives. And when we say switch religion, we don't just mean a change from, you know, one flavor of Presbyterianism to another or even going from being one type of mainline Protestant maybe an episcopalian to now attending a say a presbyterian or a mainline lutheran church. We mean a jump across the lines of religious families that is moving from protestantism to catholicism or from the evangelical wing of protestantism to the mainline wing of protestantism Um, if we just looked at denominational switching then the numbers are even higher and then if you just look at congregational switching that is changing congregations within a given denomination that's higher still i mean americans are just a really mobile group when it comes to religion and that's you know, a challenge for religious leaders, but it has led to this idea in America that religion is something that is private, it's a preference, it's personal, and that kind of helps us get along religiously.
1: Yeah, we don't have, it seems like we don't have major religious wars in this country like in many
0: other countries. It's true. Um, you know, one of the messages of American Grace is that America combines these three things. It's a religiously devout country, it's a religiously diverse country, and it's also a country that is religiously tolerant. I give a lot of lectures about the book, and often when I make that point that Americans are religiously tolerant, I'll get pushback legitimately uh, from the audience, or you know, from someone in the audience, who will point to various incidents. It seems whenever I'm giving the talk, there's something in the news. Uh, right now, as we're speaking, the Middle East is embroiled in a you know, series of riots and violence over uh, this movie that's been made in the U.S., mocking Islam and so you might point to examples like that and say well how can you say that this is a religiously tolerant country but the thing to keep in mind is that those items make the news because they're news because they're not the norm that most Americans most of the time are actually very comfortable with people of other faiths yeah well
1: I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves into the book because we do want to come back to that I kind of want to finish up with some of your background so you go away to college which is where
0: Well, I started at the University of Calgary in Canada, then uh, served my mission. Following my mission, I went to Brigham Young University. Okay. Where did you meet your wife? At BYU. Uh, So I'm Canadian. She's American. We are a mixed marriage, as we like to say.
1: (laughs) She's from... Wisconsin I think I heard you say that's once. right from central Wisconsin so actually not too far from Canada you didn't stray too far from the border to get that's there. right um, <laughs> and
0: I actually served my mission um, not in Wisconsin but in Illinois in the Midwest so we always joke that I learned to speak her language
1: <laughs> well you're pretty good with American although I detect a few of boots
0: once in a while <laughs> I like to throw them in there for the fans you know you got?
1: Did you get married during uh, your BYU years? Or
0: uh, We did, yes. We were young and married and in college. Um, my wife and I are the same age, but I served a mission. She didn't, so she graduated from college two years before I did. And she started out as a high school teacher in Orem while I was still attending BYU. And, man, did we think we were rolling in the money at that time. <laughs>
1: well, compared to other people you probably were <laughs> we were sort of the opposite my wife was a little behind me in schooling and so she had a part-time job as a, a waitress at first although later as a secretary not quite as lucrative <clears throat> so after you got married then graduate school beckoned
0: and t- where was that uh, I went to Harvard so we moved to Boston we were in Boston for a number of years uh, we refer to our time in Cambridge is our Camelot mm-hmm. um, and it's actually funny my my doctoral dissertation was not actually on religion, it was instead on how uh, the communities in which we live influence whether we are politically or civically involved and I do have to say that my thinking on that topic was definitely influenced by the fact that I moved from Provo, Utah to Cambridge, Massachusetts <laughs> so while they were in the same country they felt like they were on uh, different planets <laughs>
1: I had the similar experience. I used to tell people when I was at BYU, I was a liberal on campus, and I changed to Harvard Law School for graduate school, and I became the conservative yeah. in the school. <laughs> I, went through, I had the exact same. I went through a very similar process.
0: Well, in my case, it was moving from Canada to the U.S. You know, I'm from the most conservative part of Canada, mm-hmm. but that pales in comparison to what I experienced in Utah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Did you? begin your family while you were still in school? or My, my daughter, my oldest uh, child, she was born uh, just as I was finishing school. And so when we started graduate school, we had a five-month-old baby. And I was always known in graduate school as the married guy with kids. And so <laughs> to this day, when I run into friends of mine uh, who went to graduate school with me, they always comment on, oh, I can't believe your daughter now is so old. I remember when she was a baby, and I would yeah. bring her to all of the... You know, orientation events with the new graduate students. So you, today your family is what size? Um, I have two children, so the daughter I just mentioned, and then a son who was born while we lived in Boston, so um, Katie, but my daughter is 16, and my son is 13. Soren is his name.
1: Great. I think that's probably good enough for the background give our listeners a chance to sort of know who you are. Getting now to the The book. what what brought about the the whole project of American Grace? How did you get involved? Well, before we get to that, actually, let's talk about how you
0: ended up at Notre Dame. (laughs) You know, I get that question a lot. How can this Mormon guy teach at Notre Dame? And I wish I had a great story to tell. You know, the lady of the lake appeared, and (laughs) I knew this was the place for me. But really, the reason that I ended up at Notre Dame is that when I went on the job market, uh, after finishing my uh, Ph.D., you interview, you get offers from various schools. I was fortunate that I had some choices, and of the choices that I had, Notre Dame was the best fit. The best fit in a bunch of different ways. The community of South Bend, while certainly not Cambridge, <laughs> was um, a good place. It's been a good place to raise a family. Um, and the university itself, obviously, it's a well-known, well-resourced school, but in particular, it had made a commitment to grow in American politics, my little area of, the, uh, of political science, um, but I also knew that this was a place where the things I was interested in studying would be valued and that actually I think really is a statement about Notre Dame as a university, that Notre Dame thinks of itself rightly, not just as a Catholic university, but as a university where religion in general is taken seriously. And I'd like to think that I'm a small part of that. Um, I'm certainly by no means the only non-Catholic faculty there. In fact, our faculty is about 50% Catholic. Um, And I'm not even the only non-Catholic who works on religion. Over the years that I've been there, Notre Dame has hired a number of prominent people in various disciplines who work on various aspects of religion, you know, religious history or the sociology of religion. And some of them are Catholic, but many of them are not. In fact, some of our best-known scholars working on questions related to religion are actually not themselves Catholic. And that's because at Notre Dame there is this uh, saying that I quite like and repeat often, that in order for Notre Dame to be a Catholic university in the capital C sense, it has to be a Catholic university in a lowercase c sense. And frankly, I think a lot of Latter-day Saints could actually learn from that way of thinking about the world, that Notre Dame is secure enough as a Catholic university that it's, you know, perfectly happy to have faculty who are not Catholic working on religion, even commenting on Catholicism.
1: That is interesting. I, you know, people, I think sometimes, and I'm, I think this is very mistaken, think of Notre Dame as the BYU of Catholicism, but there are significant differences, right?
0: There are, um, and I actually often say to people, particularly members of the church, that they ought not to make that analogy, because they're not the same. One of the big differences is, of course, there are many, many Catholic universities um, in America, and they vary in significant ways in um, how religious they are and sort of what flavor of Catholicism they encourage. There are the Jesuit universities, Georgetown and Boston College, most famously, but many others as well. They have kind of a different feel on campus. At Notre Dame, they like to think that um, Notre Dame Um, is sort of more more overt in its Catholicism it's more Catholic if you will than say Georgetown and Boston College another important difference is that um, unlike BYU Notre Dame um, has no formal relationship with the Vatican so Notre Dame is a private university completely on its own it has its own endowment it is supported by an order within the Catholic Church but it doesn't fall under the chain of command whereby the Pope can dictate what happens at the university. So the president of Notre Dame um, does not fall into the overall Catholic hierarchy, which presents some interesting tensions if you are in the administration of Notre Dame, because there is a local bishop who has this famous Catholic university within his jurisdiction but doesn't actually have any say in the day-to-day operation of of the school. Uh, So that's kind of a delicate issue for our president to deal with.
1: And as I understand it, there's not anything at Notre Dame that would be comparable to the BYU Honor Code, that sort of thing, right?
0: Well, yes and no. Uh, I joke with my students at Notre Dame when they complain about the rules they have, which they refer to as the parietals. So that's sort of an old fusty term uh, that will be used in other Catholic, uh, maybe even other just Uh, generally parochial um, institutions Um, these are rules that govern when the men can be in the women's dorms we have single sex dorms uh, which makes notre dame a little unusual in higher education Uh, and whenever my students complain about their parietals i always come back with well you're talking to somebody who went to byu so you're not going to get any sympathy here so there, there are some rules um but they're pretty mild relative to what <laughs> you might find at BYU. Um, what there is at Notre Dame that I think is similar to BYU, this is probably a, a useful uh, comparison. Um, there is an honor code in not in the sense of dress and grooming, but in the sense of honesty and integrity and that sort of thing. And that is language that does actually resonate with Notre Dame students. Mm-hmm. That, in my experience, Notre Dame undergraduates take seriously the fact that they are at Notre Dame, and that means something special to them. Mm-hmm. So, if you want to shame a Notre Dame student, you can say something along the lines of "I would have expected better of a student at Notre Dame." <laughs> and I think that is probably similar to what you find at uh, sort of the mentality of BYU. Right. This is a privilege to be here. Right.
1: Now let's turn to American Grace, and now I'll ask the question that I began to ask before: and how how did that project come about?
0: Well my co-author Bob Putnam, um, he had been my advisor in graduate school when I was at Harvard, and so I would worked with him in the past. Um, He had actually encouraged me as a graduate student to do work on religion, which I did, although as I mentioned that was not actually the topic of my doctoral dissertation. But I finished up, uh, went on to become an assistant professor, Uh, had started my career. Bob and I had kept in touch but had not been working together, and then we were in a conversation about proposing a grant together that was just going to be kind of a small project to look at religious diversity in America as just one example of of different types of diversity. That then grew into the idea of writing what we initially thought of as a small book on religion. And that then grew into a five-year project and now a 550-page book on American religion. And much of the impetus actually uh, was the 2004 presidential election where religion was sort of everywhere in the air um, and it, we as we scanned the horizon it was evident to us that there really wasn't a single book that you could put on your shelf that was the definitive statement on what you need to know about religion in America and that's the book that we would hope to write
1: it seems like an incredibly timely book because you know we've had religion, particularly the Mormon religion, in the news so much lately with Mitt Romney running for president. In a way, it was almost serendipitous that you, a Mormon, would get involved in that kind of a book that's, I think, today is the definitive book on politics and religion in America. (laughs) Any comment on that?
0: Well, it has certainly given me an opportunity, I think, to speak to a lot of different audiences um, about religion in general, but then also about Mormonism per se, I think one of the distinguishing features of American Grace as a big, you know, social scientific study of religion is that we do actually break Mormons out as a separate religious tradition. And many others who write on American religion actually don't do that, which I've always found a bit puzzling because everybody breaks the Jews out. You know, we always want to learn about, um, you know, what Jews think and what Jews do. And there are actually as many Jews in America as there are Mormons. So it seems to me if you're going to talk about Jews, you should also talk about Mormons. Yeah, you know, I actually
1: I, I teach our High Priest Quorum lesson at least once a month, and one lesson I just kind of deviated from the script and, and talked about your book and some of the findings, and I asked people in the, in the group to say, what do you think are the largest American denominations, and not, not denomination, but, but if you were to divide religion into main segments, What would you say would be the largest? And I gave them the the five or six that you've identified, and just asked them to vote. You know which one they thought was the largest, and uh, they were wrong. I mean, they were almost nobody picked the one that is. So maybe a good starting point with American Grace is just what are the the religious categories that you identify?
0: That's a very good question. We um, we use a system that many social scientists do, where we group. Um, religions together in what we call religious traditions, but you can think of them as religious families. Sometimes that's a single denomination, like the Catholics, but um, often it's a a conglomeration of different denominations or even people who attend non-denominational churches who nonetheless share a set of common beliefs and styles of worship and those sorts of things. So evangelical Protestants would be a good example of what we mean by a religious family. Um, Within evangelicalism, lots of different denominations, lots of different churches, but you can identify kind of a core set of beliefs and practices that characterize um, evangelicals. So if you look at the, um, the breakdown of the different religious traditions in America, the single largest tradition are the evangelical Protestants, by which we actually mean evangelical Protestants who are not black, because black Protestants are classified as a different religious tradition. They've had a different historical trajectory, Largely rooted in the segregation um, that was prevalent in American society, including American religion, going back to the 1800s. So the largest group are the Evangelical Protestants, uh, followed by the Catholics, who, as I mentioned, are a single denomination, but we think of them as a as a tradition. So you've got the Evangelicals first, then the Catholics. They're about about 25 to 30 percent of America are Evangelicals. About 25 percent are Catholics. Um, The next largest group, interestingly, are a group that we refer to as the nuns. Uh, That is the N-O-N-E kind of nun, people who say they have no religious affiliation. Um, And that's a remarkable development. It's one of the themes in American Grace. Uh, If we'd written this book 25 years ago, we probably wouldn't have said anything at all about the nuns, people who have no religion, because they were such a small part of the population. Now, as I said, they're the third largest quote-unquote religious group in America. And then right behind the nuns are the mainline Protestants, and that's really quite remarkable. There are actually more people in America who say they have no religion than there are people who affiliate with one of the mainline Protestant denominations, the closest thing we've had to establishment religion in America. So the mainline, that's the Episcopalians, that's the... the, Methodists, uh, the Methodists, the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, or the non-evangelical wings of those of those denominations, um, still a large group, but not nearly what what they once were.
1: See that that's and that's what I think through the members of our quorum having not really thought about it and kept up with it. Probably most of them would have said Catholics were the largest, mm-hmm. and, and did say that. The second largest group thought that that mainline Protestants were, and yet. It turns out that evangelicals are the largest group that you've identified. Now, I didn't want to get you off track because I know there's a couple more groups you want to talk about, but that just mm-hmm. that was really quite unusual, I think, for most people. Right.
0: Well, rounding out the list, um, we have black Protestants. Um, not all African Americans are black Protestants, but many are. And as I said, black Protestantism, or what is sometimes referred to as the Black Church, is thought of as its own religious tradition. And why is that? Well, as I said, if you look at the history of Protestantism in America, um, there was once a time when, um, way back, there were, there were a few uh, denominations where blacks and whites would worship together, not sitting next to each other in the same pews, but at least they would be in the same church. And many of those denominations, the Baptists, for example, but many others as well, and sometimes individual churches, actually split along racial lines. And so um, African-Americans were in many cases prohibited from worshiping in the same churches as whites. So they developed you know, this almost indigenous form of religion that was Protestantism, but it had this African-American flavor to it. And over the years, given you know all of the obstacles that blacks faced in America, gaining access to other institutions, the church, was really one of the few places where African-Americans were able to develop a culture. It's where um, leadership was often expressed. Uh, So, you know, this continues today, but it was certainly the case 50 years ago and 100 years ago. If you were, you know, a talented uh, black person in America, um, one of the very few avenues open to you was the church. And there's probably no its no coincidence that many of the civil rights leaders came out of the black church. And if you just attend a black church today, many of them have a very different feel to them than what you'd find in a, in a, in a white, if you will, or non-black evangelical church. Mm-hmm. I don't want to push that distinction too far, though, because theologically there are often a lot of similarities here. Mm-hmm. So it's not so much in the actual beliefs that are held, but in the way those are expressed and in the style of worship, and then frankly just in the, in the complexion of the congregation.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, So following the black Protestants um, We have, uh, as I said, the Jews and Mormons uh, Two relatively small groups But both distinctive And then you have a group of much smaller Religious groups We often get questions about them And frankly they're so small that it's hard to say anything Systematic about them using the methods we do These include the Muslims, the Hindus, the Buddhists Um, These are all groups Obviously worthy of study They're growing in size So if we were to write another similar type book 20 years from now I'm sure we'd have a lot more to say about Muslims but even in a big national survey of randomly uh, selected Americans you still get so few members of these other groups that we just can't confidently say anything systematic about them so we sort of group them together call them other religions and say other methods will have to be used to understand those groups better. Yeah. Now your book
1: draws on sources from Many different sources, many different surveys and things, but at the core is a survey that you guys actually conducted, uh, that you named the Faith Matters Survey. And mm-hmm. I actually I thought that was a very clever name because I'm not quite sure if it means faith matters, or <laughs> if it's faith matters. If you know what I'm exactly, but <laughs> I think that you probably chose it for that reason. But uh, so tell us about that survey.
0: Sure. The the study is um, what we like to think of as the most comprehensive study done on religion in America. Uh, Not because we surveyed the most people. There actually have been other surveys done with a larger number of of people in the the sample. But I don't think you can point to a single study that goes in-depth to the same degree that ours does in what we've learned about people's religious backgrounds and their civic life and their family backgrounds and all the things that we wanted to put together into this sort of overall story about religion in America. Uh, so we first did the survey in 2006. We surveyed roughly 3,100 Americans randomly sampled from around the country. Um, one important element of our study that is a uh, kind of a... A little known fact about surveys today, uh, many of them are not done in Spanish. Ours was, which I can assure you is not a simple thing to do, because you have to make sure that your questionnaire that you've written in English means the same thing in Spanish. <laughs> so that took us uh, some work to uh, to do. And the reason why that's important really for any study of American life, but maybe especially a study of religion, is that with the growing Latino population in America, if you want to understand what's happening in religion, particularly within Catholicism, you need to be able to speak to people in Spanish because mm-hmm. there's just a large number of Americans who are much more comfortable in Spanish than English. And we're glad that we actually went through the effort to, to do that. I think it made a difference in our understanding of of getting you know the, the whole picture of religion.
1: Actually, your mention of Spanish brings up an interesting point. One of the things that you... Studied was how religions have changed over the years, at least the last, I don't know, 40 or 50 years, in terms of the number of adherents. And some churches clearly are growing. I think the reason that nobody thought the evangelicals was the largest group is because people don't realize how much they've grown in recent years. And with regard to the Catholics, the Catholics, as I recall, haven't shrunk, uh, but they haven't grown, and there's there's a complete separation between the the, the Hispanic Catholics and the more traditional Polish uh, right right. Uh, what well, we sometimes Irish. call
0: we call, sometimes we refer to them as the as the quote unquote Anglo Catholics yeah uh, okay which is kind of a clunky term because that can actually have another meaning as well. But meaning non Latino Catholics and yeah the story of Catholicism in the last generation or so is um, on the one hand this flat line. Catholics have been about 25% of the population for 30, 40, maybe even 50 years now. But that relatively steady 25% actually disguises a huge demographic transformation in the Catholic Church whereby the Anglo-Catholics are actually leaving the Church in droves, frankly. If you were to add up Ex Catholics in America and call them their own group, um, they would rank as one of the largest quote unquote religious groups in America. I mean, it's really a crisis within the Catholic Church. But it's that def- those defections have been disguised a bit by the fact that as the Anglos have been leaving, the Latinos have been entering because we've had a wave of immigration in America. Obviously, much of that consists of Latinos coming to the U.S. It's also the case that Latinos have a higher birth rate than Anglos, so they're having more children. And, perhaps most importantly, their kids are most, more, more likely to stay with the faith than our Anglos. Now, that might change as Latinos become more assimilated into American society, but for now, that's the case. Here's the statistic that sort of puts this in perspective. Of Catholics under the age of 30, so young Catholics, okay, of those who were in church last week, or any week, 60% of them were Latino. That's the future of the American Catholic Church. Interesting. I wonder
1: if if there's any sort of a a similar occurrence within the Mormon Church. This would, of course, have to be worldwide, and I don't have those statistics in front of me, but I'm I'm just sort of speculating out loud as to whether non-Anglo Mormons are increasing at a much greater rate than, uh, quote, unquote Anglo mm. or Northern European background, or European background? Uh, that's
0: a good question. I mean, worldwide, certainly that's the sense we get. I honestly don't know in the U.S. whether that's the case. Um, one of the things that might actually cut against uh, the retention of Latinos or any minorities within the LDS church is actually the... Um, The nature of what it takes to sort of be active in the church. There's kind of a level of literacy that's needed. There's a level of organizational acumen that's needed. We don't often talk about this in the church, but it's the facts. You know, having a lay-run church, on the one hand, gives lots of opportunities for people to be involved in the operation of their local ward or branch. It also means that people who maybe don't have those skills, have a more difficult time being, you know, functioning in those positions. And I do sometimes wonder whether folks who have a language barrier or other challenges might find it difficult to really fit into the the heart and soul of Mormonism because, you know, they're not comfortable reading aloud or they've never organized a meeting before or these are things that, um, you know, there's no reason why they can't learn them, but they have to be taught. And sometimes I think people might be a little intimidated by that.
1: Yeah. I, mean, I, I remember, I'm old enough to remember that uh, the, the famous Time Magazine cover of April 8th, 1966 and there was just three words on the cover, is God dead? <laughs> and at, at that point in 1966, I'm almost thinking a lot of people in America thought perhaps God was dead and there was no future and yet uh, as, as things developed, it was a great surprise. And tell us your analysis of all of that.
0: Well, the story we tell in American Grace is that, um, if you go back to the 1950s, America was a highly religious country. Um, In fact, some historians argue that America was actually more religious in the 1950s than at any other time in its history. And immediately following that decade, America experienced what we call the shock of the 1960s, whereby we went from this high level of religiosity, by any measure, to a period where Really, religion went into flux in America. Um, For the most part, Americans held on to their religious affiliations, this growth of the nuns that I was talking about earlier. That didn't come until later, but church attendance dropped, and certainly religion as a moral authority uh, began to erode in the 60s as the sexual revolution set in. And so it was in the midst of that, in 66, that time puts this question on their, on their cover of whether God is dead and when I'm giving a lecture about this, the point I make is that if I were giving the lecture in 1969 say, it would have seemed as though America was just on this inevitable decline toward ever greater secularism and uh, you know, give us another 10 or 20 years and we'll be France or something but that's not what happened so after the shock of the 60s we actually had an aftershock whereby we saw a growth in theologically conservative religion, mostly but not entirely concentrated in evangelicalism. That is, the evangelical Protestants actually grew through that period because they were attracting people who were unsettled by the changes of the 60s. So if I were giving this analysis in, say, 1979, maybe even 1989, it would appear as though evangelicalism was just on this upward trajectory. It wasn't you know, going to stop. But religion's dynamic. And so it it did stop, and we had a second aftershock. So the shock of the 60s, the aftershock, first one, growth of a conservative brand of religion. And now the second aftershock is the period we're in now, and that's whereby we've actually seen an increasing percentage of Americans turn away from religion. And why is that? Well, one of the main reasons is that for many of those folks turned off of religion, They see religion as a political force, and they don't see their politics expressed in religion. These are not conservatives. These are moderates and liberals. And so increasingly, they turn away from religion because they equate religion with a partisan brand of politics that's not theirs.
1: That's interesting. I've often wondered whether these sort of waves of religiosity could have anything to do with just kids want to be different than their parents in a way. I mean, <laughs> so, You know, yeah. the, the, when the uh, Vietnam War hit and the, the age of the hippies and all of that, and I did live through that, those kids thought they were rebelling against their more straight-laced parents. And I've often wondered if the rise of strong evangelicalism and, and religiosity in America didn't have to do with the kids of the hippie generation thinking, well, oh, that that excess has been carried a little too far, uh, there may be there's something in religion that could help us, right? And well,
0: I think throughout the <laughs> '70s there was a lot of that. But what that point reflects is actually how innovative and entrepreneurial American religion, just in general, is mm-hmm. you know, taking the gospel message and packaging it in a way or presenting it in a way that might be attractive to a new uh, group. And you know, one of the other things that was happening during that period of the first aftershock that is continuing today um, was the invention of the the megachurch. Now mega churches today are prevalent and almost every American community has at least one and in some cases many. You know, we're sitting here in Southern California where there are a number of very large and quite famous mega uh, megachurches. But the megachurch was really an innovation in organization, the way a church should be set up. They're enormous, so when you attend one, you feel like you're part of something big, but at the same time, You also have a small group. There's this cellular structure that's a very important part of how that kind of church operates. So you worship with 20,000 people, but then during the week you might meet with only a dozen. And these are the people who are really the church to you. They're close to you. They're the ones that you share your troubles and travails with. I think the megachurch was created as a response to a loss of community in other ways. You know, In some communities, megachurches sponsored basketball leagues and soccer leagues and book clubs and all the sorts of things that, well, the Lions Club used to do or you know other fraternal groups or the YMCA did, and those groups have atrophied over time. But the megachurch sort of sprung up and took its place for many, many people.
1: Kind of sounds like, in some senses at least, the Mormon church is a giant megachurch because we provide a lot of extracurricular activities as well.
0: And it is interesting, actually, that while um, the church's structure is, of course, not the same as a megachurch, there are, nonetheless, some interesting parallels there. So take my point about if you're a member of a megachurch, you attend church with 20,000 people each um, weekend, and that gives you a sense of being part of something big. Well, I think Mormonism actually has something like that. General Conference reminds Mormons that there are millions of Mormons around the country. We're constantly reminded as Mormons of how many Mormons there are in the country. We take great pride in the growth of the church, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but wards themselves are always small, and then the wards themselves are broken into smaller subunits so that you can get to know your neighbors. I mean, the whole home teaching visiting program, teaching program really is you know, kind of a way to tap into the same idea.
1: Speaking of the megachurches, it kind of brings up a point about your book that I'd like to talk about. And by the way, this was one of my favorite books that I've read for quite some time. Uh, Both my wife Dawn and I read it. We ended up actually downloading the audible version Mm -hmm. because we like to listen when we work out or drive or whatever. And that was interesting, but then I, I felt like I needed to buy the hardcover copy as well because it's a little harder to visualize the charts. (laughs) when you're just listening to it, and you've got some great charts in the book, so I've got both. But your book is not just a bunch of charts and a bunch of statistics, which I think makes it come alive for readers, and is one of the reasons why it's won all the awards it has, because you intersperse uh, among the charts and, and statistics vignettes where you go out and visit Different churches, And maybe you could just tell us a little bit about that, how that came about, and what are some of the types of churches that you visited and profile in, in this book. Yeah.
0: Uh, well, let me first note that it's, uh, I appreciate your uh, commenting on the, the vignettes, because as we were writing the book, we actually met with some resistance among other academics, other, particularly social scientists who uh, had read an early draft of the book. Uh, Some of them were concerned that the vignettes sort of bogged things down. and Both Bob and I, I think we both had a sense that you couldn't really tell the story of religion in America without providing a a qualitative, even an ethnographic uh, sense of just how it is that people worship and how it is that they experience the community that you find in any kind of congregation. So what we wanted to do was highlight um, illustrative examples of different types of religions. So we wanted to cover each of the major religious traditions in America. And so the congregations we highlight actually um, really vary. They vary geographically, and then they vary, of course, in the, uh, in the particular traditions. So they include um, the Saddleback megachurch in Southern California, as well as some Episcopal parishes in the Boston area. That enables us to contrast kind of the old and the new The Episcopals being, you know, the old line of Protestantism, uh, the megachurch being the new face of Protestantism. Uh, We looked at some Catholic parishes in the Chicago area. It was actually a cluster of parishes, some that have had a larger influx of Latinos than others. So the idea is that we had one parish that was almost entirely Latino today, even though in the past it had been Polish and Lithuanian. Another parish of a sort of 50 50 between the Latinos and the Anglos, and then another where we hadn't seen much of a Latino influx. And that was done so that we could highlight you know, both the positives and the negatives to this transformation that the Catholic Church is undergoing. You know, It's easy to sort of step away from the, the nitty gritty of what parishes deal with day to day and say, oh, isn't this wonderful? The Catholic Church is this utopia. It brings Latinos and Anglos together and they worship together. Well, it turns out that while that happens in some cases, in more cases it actually produces all sorts of tensions and such so we bring that on we have a we have a black church in baltimore that is filled with wonderful stories um we do an lds ward um in sandy uh utah uh, that ward was actually uh chosen because we wanted to highlight how religion is actually brought up or how politics pardon me is brought up um in different types of congregations and um Therefore, we wanted a ward that wasn't entirely Republican, with at least a critical mass of Democrats. That turned out a little harder than you might think to find. But I, I don't <laughs> think it. I am actually <laughs> amazed you found such a ward in it's, Sandy, Utah. It's Sandy, of all places. But <laughs> let's see. We also have um, a synagogue in Evanston, Illinois, that. Is a very interesting contrast. We actually contrast the synagogue with the uh, the LDS ward, and then throughout we have you know other examples of say another evangelical type church in the Minneapolis area that's sort of more of a prosperity gospel Pentecostal church. We have a fascinating, very conservative you know, that is an evangelical type uh, Lutheran church in Houston, in Houston, Texas, where. German is actually spoken in the church. I mean, it's a very Germanic-feeling church, and that helps us make a point about ethnicity and how it's tied up with religion. So there's a whole bunch, and uh, they're written, as you said, completely in a qualitative way, not a single chart graph. It's all meant to just sort of almost like we've taken a video camera and turned it on and just let these people tell their stories about their own faith.
1: I thought it was interesting to read about, of course, being a Mormon, when I came across the little vignette on on the Mormons, to read something that was written for consumption by non-Mormons. In other words, you had to explain a little bit what was going on. And and my my initial first reaction as I read it was, gosh, this is not a typical Mormon war. But as you point out, it, it helped you make the point of how politics does... Affect people on the grassroots level, and in order for that to happen, I suppose you needed something where there were two, two brands of politics instead of the one that is, I think, more typical of most Mormon wards. The other thing, though, that that both Don and I found fascinating was the camera vision you gave us of Rick Warren's uh, megachurch, I, and I think most of the people here on on our podcast who are listening, are familiar with Catholicism, a Catholic church. Maybe we've attended it, maybe we've gone to missions in Catholic countries. Most of us are familiar with Protestants and Protestant churches. But I'll bet a lot of Mormons have never set foot in in a megachurch. And so give us, just as as yourself as a Mormon, what's your camera-eye view of what Rick Warren's (laughs) megachurch is like?
0: Well, the first thing I actually would want to make clear is... It is easy to poke fun, actually, at what you experience at a mega church. But I always caution members of the LDS Church, and frankly, adherents to any religion, to be careful in what you say about another faith, mm-hmm. because what might seem strange to you is perfectly normal to them, and what we do might seem kind of strange uh, to them. So, what right. you find often in a mega church, and particularly in Rick Warren's church, is an entire church. Built around making people who might not otherwise be comfortable with religion feel like they have a place there. So, if you've ever heard Rick Warren speak or if you've read his work, um, he has a story that he tells about how he started his church. He went around door to door, he says, and asked people, Why don't you go to church? And he would write down their answers. And their answers were things like, Well, I don't like organ music. I like contemporary music or, you know, I don't like stodgy sermons. And so he wrote all this down and he said, well, I'm going to create a church that's for those people. And that's what Saddleback is. That's what most megachurches are. So if you go to Saddleback, you're not going to hear stodgy organ music. You're going to hear, you know, a contemporary pop band. Rick Warren doesn't wear a tie he wears floral print shirts there's a lot of powerpoint there. you know, the points of the sermons are distributed in little handouts that people have like you're attending some sort of corporate training session but for his audience this works well and let me emphasize again What the whole organization provides is a sense of community that is so often missing in many Americans' lives. And when you speak to people who are at Saddleback or other megachurches, that's often the thing they point to, that they like about the church. It's not so much that they have carefully evaluated the theology that's taught, because frankly, most of the theology is pretty watered down. Rather, they're there because... They're with friends, they're with people who care about them, and they're hearing a message that they feel applies to their lives. It's mostly Jesus loves you, and Jesus wants you to do what's best for you, Mm -hmm. as compared to don't do this or you'll go to hell. Mm -hmm. You don't get much of that in a a, um, megachurch. So like I said, it's, 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 it's funny, I've talked to Mormons and they'll sort of be dismissive of the fact that there's a coffee shop and a cafe inside the megachurch complex, well, you know that's not crazy to me actually that this is something people want, and I don't know if you've noticed, but sometimes Mormons <laughs> actually have a little food in their services, so <laughs> yeah,
1: you always have the Cheerios, uh, but I mean, that to me that's fascinating. I have not attended, and I've actually made a commitment to myself that I'm going to visit uh, one of the mega churches here in, in Southern California, maybe Rick Warren's. We've got another one in close by called Mariners, but. As I understand it, when you go there, you can kind of choose your brand of of service as well. Isn't that
0: right? That's right. So they'll have um, different, essentially, auditoriums or venues where um, you all get the same sermon. So Rick Warren, um, he stands on one stage in one of the venues, delivers the sermon, but it's beamed to all the others. And that's the same. But everything else about the service would vary. The style of music. So I mentioned you know, the fact that most people who attend mega church, they're looking for more contemporary music. Well, some people actually do prefer the older style, so that's there for them. And some people prefer jazz, so they'll have sort of a jazz version. And if you're young, if you're like a teenager, you can go to the teenage one, and there you get sort of an edgier version of it. Um, and that's all meant, you know, the idea is to sort of tailor, not, I guess they would say, the message so much, but the way the message is delivered in a way that people would receive it.
1: And then they've got a playground for kids that have a lot of playground equipment that's sort of biblical themed. Yeah, they
0: have a... It's almost like a theme park. You know, they have a... The the, the way the, the Saddlebackians, if you will, talk about it is this is one way of instructing people. We want to instruct them visually and tactilely by showing them the parting of the Red Sea and such. So in that sense, it's maybe not completely unlike, say, visiting a... Historic site, say that the church is constructed, or a visitor center, or something mm-hmm. like that. It's the same sort of thing. You know, mm-hmm. let's let's teach our people through something other than sitting in a lesson and reading a book.
1: And if you're sitting in a coffee shop and having your coffee or diet coke or whatever, the sermon is being beamed there as well, right? Yeah,
0: the whole philosophy is um, if you are investigating, as the as the Mormons would say, the church, you can come and experience. The, uh, the the worship without making a commitment, so you can sort of stay on the periphery and still you know hear what's being said and still participate. And they do all sorts of things. They have like what they call a parking ministry. So if you're new to the church, if you're a visitor, actually you get to park up front um, and you'll be identified as a visitor, so you get the special parking. You know, the whole the whole operation is designed to welcome new people and make sure they feel comfortable and and all that kind of thing. You know, I've often thought that might
1: be an interesting thing for our church to try on a, maybe on a stake basis or a multi-stake basis where you can kind of go to a big group of Mormons and and choose. If you want to go to a a Sunday school class where just the straight Orthodox line is being taught, you can do that. And, And no one will ask a question that will raise any hackles whatsoever. And yet, if you wanted to go and maybe talk a little bit more about some of the mysteries, uh, you could have that, or or if you're on a more liberal bent and and don't mind questioning uh, something, uh, you could have that group and and have (laughs) teachers that were kind of geared toward each level. uh, I I think that all makes a great deal of sense, not that we'll ever do it. but
0: Well, you know, uh, I I mentioned that my time in graduate school was spent in, in Boston, and the the wards in Cambridge are somewhat famous, or maybe infamous, in some circles for their innovations. And I actually wasn't a ward that did this. We had multiple gospel gospel doctrine classes, and they weren't officially advertised as the conservative, the liberal, and the moderate. But everyone knew that was the difference between the uh, different classes. Yeah.
1: Well, that, that's 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 a vibrant atmosphere. I I certainly enjoyed that. So let, let's get now into how we separate. Religions, in terms of, of how they differentiate themselves politically and relating to issues that are important in the world today, I'm not sure how to best broach that topic. Perhaps you have a way of getting us into it.
0: Well, if you look at religions themselves in America, um, you do find wide variation in whether or not politics is discussed much at church and then exactly how it is broached and how it comes up. So the first thing to keep in mind, and this comes as as a surprise uh, to many Americans who are themselves not very religious, the first thing to keep in mind is that politics is a relatively rare occurrence in most churches or, or places of worship in general. So it is a myth that, for example, evangelical Protestants go to church and on a regular basis they receive you know, political instruction, or they hear politics discussed. Now, with that said, however, there is variation among those churches where you find at least a little bit of politics. So a second surprise to many folks is that you actually find more politics in churches that we would think of as being liberal or on the left side of the spectrum rather than on the right side. So uh, the two religious traditions where you're most likely to hear politics at church the black church, that may not come as a surprise, but also synagogues. But you find a fair amount of politicking um, actually in your sort of typical liberal mainline Protestant church as well. It's not terribly effective, it's not clear that people are being mobilized behind the causes that are mentioned, but they're there, and they are expressed on a regular basis. Um, so that's one of the important things to keep in mind. And then another is if you look at the trajectory of what's happened over the last generation or so to the interplay between religion and politics in the U.S., much of what's happened is actually not because of the churches so much as the parties, that both the Democratic and Republican parties have separated on issues that matter a lot to religious folks or that divide religious and secular Americans. So when we fight elections about abortion and about homosexual rights, religious and secular Americans are going to line up against each other because those are issues where their religion informs their views. When we fight elections about other things, religious and secular Americans actually do not differ much at all. And on some issues, they truly do not differ at all. Uh, Immigration is a good example. There are lots of things that divide Americans on the question of immigration. Religion is not one of them. Um, But that's true, actually, for lots of other issues as well. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. And, and you
1: mentioned, I think, sort of the two hot-button issues where religion does divide us, uh, and that's abortion and mm. homosexual issues.
0: Yeah, specifically same-sex marriage, of course, but gay mm-hmm. rights generally.
1: Yeah, yeah. Which of the major religions, are there some that, that, where that divides them more than others? I mean, are there some who more strongly associate with the anti-abortion, anti-gay rights issues than, than others, or how does that break down? Well,
0: the way it breaks down is that in... In years past, prior to say the mid-1970s, to the extent that religion mattered in American politics, it was largely your denomination that mattered. That's what John F. Kennedy faced in 1960. It was the fact that he was Catholic that mattered. Kennedy himself, of course, was not a terribly devout Catholic. That wasn't relevant. It was just simply the fact that he had this almost tribal identity as Catholic. It mattered to the Catholics. He was their guy. And, of course, it mattered to many Protestants because they were suspicious of the Catholic. Well, once we had abortion firstly and then later gay rights injected into our politics, denominations ceased to be the main dividing line in American politics. Instead, it has become how religious you are or how devoted you are to whatever your religion might be. This is sometimes referred to as the God Gap. Again, I think it's widely known among people that a strong predictor of how you vote is how frequently you attend religious services. That's true for Catholics. It's true for evangelicals. It's true for um, Jews. It's true for every group. And that's a new development. That's the first thing to keep in mind. It's a new development. Has not always been the case. It's because of those social issues. And even today, in our contemporary political environment, it's not universal. Because the most religious group in America are black Protestants. And they're not the most Republican. They're the least Republican. Mm -hmm. That reminds us that there is no iron law that links religion of any type or level of religiosity, you know, of any intensity, and any particular space on the political spectrum. So it's the way it is now. It's not the way it's always been. It's not necessarily the way it will always be.
1: And yet on issues of abortion and particularly homosexual rights, uh, the black churches are probably one of the more conservative.
0: Yeah, right. uh, that's, that's especially true when it comes to um, gay rights. Abortion, there actually, in the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years, has been sort of a, I guess you'd say, a liberalizing or a more pro-choice um, influence within the black church, although even then, most African-American Protestants, at least, are going to be um, strongly uh, opposed to abortion and then very strongly opposed to same-sex marriage. But they still don't vote Republican, which suggests that for that constituency, those are not the issues that are the most important when it comes to deciding how to cast their ballot. Mm -hmm.
1: This might be a good time to just kind of focus on how Mormons uh, differ from other groups with respect to these hot-button issues. And let's talk about abortion first. What, what, What findings did you make about Mormons compared to other groups in relation to
0: abortion? Well... The way I would describe um, Mormon attitudes on abortion is that they are definitely conservative, definitely anti-abortion or or pro-life, if you will, but with some nuance. And that's actually an important point to make because um, while Mormons are generally opposed to abortions, if you give them a long list of circumstances in which a woman might seek an abortion, Mormons would disapprove of abortion in almost all of those to a much greater extent than others in the population, much more so than evangelicals, much more so than Catholics with two um, notable exceptions and that is when abortion is sought because the health of the mother is in jeopardy or when the pregnancy resulted from rape or or incest and in those two cases, Mormons are actually this is amazing, the most likely to approve of abortion than anyone else in the population. So you get this very interesting bifurcation whereby Mormons say no to abortion in almost all cases, but yes to abortion in these two exceptions, essentially. And, of course, that's because this is the position of the LDS Church. And because the Church has not taken an official position on where when life begins in the way that the Catholics have and the way that many evangelicals do... It does open up this space uh, for the exceptions. And that means that if you're a politician and you're speaking to an LDS audience, you probably actually need to be careful in how you talk about abortion because it's not the same issue for Mormons as it would be for evangelicals and Catholics. And then, of course, those who are familiar with LDS culture know, even though this is um, difficult to convince those outside the tradition, we know that within the culture, abortion is actually not... Something that is discussed on a regular basis. I mean, when do we ever hear talks in general conference that are focused on abortion? Rarely, if ever, maybe not ever. But in Catholicism and in many evangelical churches, you hear about abortion all the time. It's just a regular part of what is discussed.
1: Yeah, I do think that the church's uh, teaching on or failure to specify exactly when the spirit enters the body leaves some wiggle room on abortion, and it probably uh, saves us a lot of agony on that score. The reason that we oppose abortion almost seems to have more to do with our general view of families and the fact that there are spirits in heaven waiting to come, and that we should provide tabernacles for them, and, and the more who are Mormon tabernacles, the better, rather than you're killing a baby if you, if you have an abortion. Mm-hmm. What about homosexuality? How Do we differ at all from the other churches
0: in that? Well, we do in, uh, in a couple of different ways that almost seem to be contradictory. But again, this is conservatism with nuance. So if you just look at questions about the role of homosexuality in society, the Pew Forum, for example, they do a lot of polling, and they've asked a question that just asked people to make a choice. Do you think homosexuality should be encouraged or discouraged by society? Sort of a very simple binary choice. And on that question, Mormons are the most likely, far and away the most likely to say, that homosexuality should be discouraged in American society. However, when you look at two issues in particular, gay marriage and gay adoption, you actually get a slightly different story. So, to be clear... Almost uniformly, Mormons oppose gay marriage. It's upwards of around 90% of Mormons say that they oppose gay marriage. But of that 90%, roughly half say, well, I'm not willing to approve of marriage for homosexual couples, but I am willing to approve of civil unions, kind of a middle ground. And that differentiates Mormons from other religious traditions. So, you know, evangelicals, for example, they also are opposed to gay marriage, but a much smaller percentage are willing to approve of civil unions. And I think that's because the church's rhetoric on the question of same-sex marriage has focused on marriage. That's what the church has an issue with, marriage, not necessarily other forms of legal relationships. Another question that we've asked uh, now of, of just Mormons in particular deals with gay adoption. Gay adoption is a very interesting subject because it puts two values that Mormons care a lot about in tension. On the one hand, as I mentioned, Mormons are not comfortable with homosexuality, right? Should be discouraged by society. On the other hand, Mormons are all about families, and adoption is generally a good thing. So what happens when you ask Mormons about gay adoption? an issue on which, as far as I know, the church has not really made a visible stand. If you dug around on the LDS.org website, maybe you could find a policy statement on it, but it's not something that's discussed on any kind of regular basis. You find a lot of ambivalence. So most Mormons oppose gay adoption, but a fair number, about a third, are fine with it. And just to put that in perspective, more Mormons are willing to approve of adoption by gay couples than... Support the Palestinians over the Israelis. Believe that we should have a bigger government rather than a smaller government. uh, Who support affirmative action. I mean, there's just a whole list of things where Mormons are way more monolithic, if you will, or uniform in their opinions than this question of gay adoption. And why is that? I think it's because there's some ambivalence on these questions.
1: Hmm. I do
0: find that interesting
1: because uh, at least the rhetoric that I hear in church very often is strongly opposed uh, to gay adoption but uh, my sense is that it's also very much a generational thing and that the younger generation, Mormon younger generation included, are far more tolerant of gay issues, gay marriage, gay adoption, than than the older people.
0: Well, what we find is on gay adoption, yes, you would find younger people more willing uh, to approve of it. Less so on gay marriage, actually, young Mormons... um, are more, much more likely to oppose gay marriage than certainly young people of other faiths and only a little bit less likely to oppose it than our uh, folks who are a little older. And I think that's a reflection of the fact that the, you know, the church has made its position clear on this, whereas for gay adoption maybe it hasn't. But I do suspect that going forward we will see um, a greater generational divide on that question, if only because we already see it outside of Mormonism And then another thing to keep in mind on many of these issues is that men and women differ. On on many things, Mormon men and Mormon women actually don't differ that much, um, but on gay adoption, they do. Women are much more comfortable with it than men are, which, again, is, I think, an interesting... Yeah. I actually
1: did a little poll of my own a while back, and I got over 300 responses, so it wasn't an insignificant sampling, of young Mormons, and by young I mean in the ages of to 35 for the most part, and the issues that either caused them, uh, and I, I tried to survey both those who had, were inactive in the church and active, so I had, I mean it wasn't a 50-50 split, but I probably had a 70-30, maybe 65-35 split, and to them it seemed like the issues that most bothered them, I asked a bunch of things about the church's political homogeneity, the gay issues, the historical, various historical issues, the issue of correlation, uh, of authority, and all of that. The issue that seemed to bother most people, whether they were active or inactive, more than any other, was the gay rights Mm -hmm. issue.
0: And that's uh, something that you find, um, as I said, outside of Mormonism um, as well. Was this in California? Well, it started out as a
1: survey of members uh, of Children of, of my high priest quorum, but it branched out to be their friends and kind of it was an online survey, so anyone mm-hmm. that got the, the link could answer it. But I suspect that it was highly tilted toward Californians or people who at least had their childhood in California, maybe a little more liberal than. Well, well, actually,
0: what, what I was thinking is um, you know, I think for members of the church in California. Uh, given the follow from Proposition Eight, that um, you know, gay rights and same-sex marriage is sort of on the minds and the lips of Mormons here in a way that it might not be actually in other parts of the country. I've been struck by that. I've been here in Southern California for the last couple of days, and it's interesting to me how that you know keeps coming up in a way that it doesn't in Indiana, mm-hmm. uh, where I live. This will diverge a little bit from this subject,
1: but it, but it's something that I, that you mentioned uh, to me earlier, and that is how. On political issues, first of all, let's make it clear that the law in America, in the United States, is that churches can have opinions on ballot issues, on anything, and can express them in in church, on anything other than support or, or negativity toward a particular candidate. And if they, if they actually come out in favor of a candidate, they risk their tax-exempt status. They can do it. I mean, we have freedom of religion here. Yes. But they risk their tax-exempt status. But otherwise, they're free to speak out. So the church was free to speak out on, on Prop 8. But you kind of made a point that the church, even though it's free to do that, doesn't do it a lot and you kind of compared it to tinder what what uh, what was that all about? Uh,
0: the metaphor uh, that i have used with um, with quinn monson uh, co-author of mine at byu the metaphor is that you can think of mormons as being like dry kindling there are many characteristics of mormonism and particularly the way the lds church is structured that make mormons sort of ripe for political mobilization this is a group of people who are used to doing things on a large scale on a regular basis right if you want to get something done quickly you want to clean up a park you want to do a blood drive call the mormons because they know how to get people out to do things and it's just you know part of the fabric of mormon life we all know this you know we need to have volunteers to set up the chairs and take down the chairs or to take the deacons around to collect the fast offerings or whatever we're doing right And on top of that, Mormons are a very cohesive group. We also have a theology where there's a clear um, hierarchical structure to the church and the belief that one should follow the leaders of the church when they speak out on a particular issue. So all of that sort of makes Mormons prime for political mobilization. And when the message comes from church leaders, it's like dropping a match onto the kindling and Mormons can be rapidly ignited. The important point, however that I often make to non-LDS audiences is that the reason those political messages are so potent, that is, the reason they have such efficacy from church leaders, is because they are so uncommon. And that is something that outside of Mormonism is actually hard for our people to to really believe. They sort of think it's a lot of wink-wink, nudge-nudge. Oh, sure, the church says they don't get involved politically, but truly they, they must. And, you know, while Mormons themselves as individuals are very politically active, I really think it's fair to say the church itself is not. And we see that in the data. Mormons are just far and away the least likely of any religious group in America to say that they've heard about politics at church, or specifically politics over the pulpit. Yeah.
1: I was thinking another analogy might be, rather than Tinder, to... Uh, lighting a brush fire I mean you can light a brush fire and it'll blaze very strongly for a period of time and it'll burn out but you don't want to or you can't really start that same brush fire again right away but if you wait a few years uh, the brush grows back up you can do it sure Uh, that's kind of that idea
0: that's exactly the idea Um, and you know the, the important thing that I would underscore both to an LDS and to a non-LDS audience, is that those same institutional features that you find within Mormonism are reflected in other traditions as well. So it's not necessarily unique to Mormonism that you would find, for example, the volunteering within a congregation. What is perhaps unique for Mormonism is the particular constellation of all of these factors together in one group. So Catholics have the hierarchical structure, but they don't have as much volunteering in their congregations. Many Protestants have just as much volunteering within their congregations. They don't have the same kind of hierarchical structure or the theological infrastructure that would lead you to believe that you should follow what the leaders say um, on on those occasions when they speak. You know, it's just
1: a quick anecdote that I have about this Mormon volunteerism. We took a cruise a few years ago, and, and my sister and her husband and I my wife sat at a table with four other people who were also related, brother and sister and and spouses. And they were Canadians. They were from, I think, Quebec. It took maybe a day of being at the same table, because you ate at the same table each day of the cruise, maybe two days, before they gleaned that we were Mormons. And the minute they did, uh, the one guy said, Oh, we have nothing but praise for Mormons. If it were not for Mormons, we would not you know, have what we have today in, in our area, and then he went on to explain that he was kind of the leader of a, some farming venture that was supposed to be a combined venture of many different religions to provide produce for poor people or whatever. The idea was that they'd all provide volunteers to work on this farm on a regular basis. Well, it turns out that one of his friends happened to be a state president in the church mm-hmm. there, and, and he interested him in that project. So this probably helped that it was a stake president, but he said that initially the other churches got involved and pretty soon they just lost interest and they could never get anybody out, but the Mormons were always there and essentially it became a Mormon project almost. So, I mean, that gives you the idea of how hierarchy together with our tradition of volunteerism can really uh, make a difference. What about gender roles? How do Mormons differ from other religions uh, on that?
0: Well... When we speak of Mormons being distinctive, um, one way in which they're truly unquestionably distinctive is in the attitudes that Mormons have, both Mormon men and Mormon women, uh, toward traditional gender roles. So on a survey that I've done of Mormons in particular, as well as other surveys of um, the national population. So that would include Mormons, but other groups as well. Uh, we've asked questions that sort of tap into people's feelings about well, what, what makes for the ideal family situation. And if you ask it that way and you pose the choice between you know, a family where both the mom and dad work or a family where the dad works and the mom stays at home uh, with the kids, Mormons are far more likely, way more, Uh, Likely to say that the ideal situation is dad works outside the home, mom stays home with the kids. Um, In fact, no other group comes close. Even evangelicals, even evangelicals, even black Protestants are actually a very you know conservative group in this uh, type of uh, question. uh, They just don't approach what you find among Mormons. Now, a couple things to note about that. First of all, men and women do not differ. Uh, Secondly. Remember I said that's what Mormons believe to be the ideal situation, it's not necessarily what their own family reflects. And, importantly, there actually has been a change on this question over the last generation or so. So we have data going back to the 1970s on questions about gender roles in big national surveys. And Mormons are always more conservative than everyone else, but... Mormons have actually, over the last 30 or 40 years, been trending toward greater acceptance of women working outside the home. So if you extrapolate a little bit, what, what this means is that we can expect by about the time we reach 2020, that your average Mormon will have the same attitude on the you know appropriate gender roles within a family as the rest of America did in 1980.
1: Okay. <laughs> well... What, 40 years behind the times? That's not too bad. <laughs> and on immigration, you mentioned that before, but uh, we, we are actually uh, surprisingly liberal
0: on that, are we not? Yeah, immigration is an interesting um, issue because for your average Mormon who would be a Republican, or at least, you know, uh, identify with the, with the Republican Party or lean toward the Republican Party, uh, for your average Mormon, Um, They're actually getting conflicting messages from their church and their party. And for someone like myself, who's interested in how people form political opinions, this is an interesting issue, right? So what do they follow, church or party? And and the reason that I say that the church and party differ is that, you know, the church has been a, a real voice of compassion and moderation on immigration policy, whereas, you know, the church does not encourage strong enforcement of immigration law and would rather see You know, some sort of system worked out whereby people who are undocumented in America are somehow given a path to citizenship or a way to stay here. Because, of course, the church puts a priority on keeping families together and deportations generally break up families. Well, when you look um, at Mormons in general and how they feel about immigration, you get a lot of ambivalence. And in fact, what that shakes out to mean is that Mormons are more likely to be sympathetic to immigrants and believe that leniency should win out over, um, or compassion should win out over enforcement, than are other groups that we think of as being politically conservative, like evangelicals, uh, for example. Now... One reason for that is the church's own position on immigration. Although I think it's fair to say that for many rank-and-file Mormons, they may not actually be clear on this. It's not as though the church talks about its immigration stand on a regular basis. It's not like we hear general conference talks, for example, on it. But there's another factor in Mormon culture that's quite important that helps explain the, um, the attitude that Mormons have toward um, immigrants, and that is the mission experience. Um, We can see in our data that Mormons who have served a mission, and especially those Mormons who have served a foreign-speaking mission, whether it's in the U.S. or abroad, um, they're way more likely to be sympathetic to immigrants. And that makes sense, right? These Mm -hmm. are people who have spent 18 months, two years of their life with these folks, people who are either... You know, in their own country, uh, suffering economically and looking for a better life, or they've come to the U.S. and are struggling here to make a better life for themselves. It just seems to foster a sympathy. Mm-hmm. Another
1: issue that, that we might be interested in probing how Mormons feel is the difference between whether you favor civil liberties or whether you kind of favor a strong police state is one way of putting it. I know... As you study, for example, United States Supreme Court opinions, when the justices are divided, you almost always have the more conservative justices, uh, or the more liberal justices voting for the civil liberties side and the conservatives not. How do Mormons break out on
0: that? Well, we've asked um, the the American uh, public uh, a question that asks them to state where they think the priorities should lie. Should we be more concerned with protecting civil liberties or should we be more concerned with protecting personal safety and surroundings? Um, It's a fascinating question because it actually divides the American public pretty neatly in half because conservatives and liberals sharply disagree on this question. And because they are conservative in so many other ways, you would expect Mormons to come down on the law and order side of that question. And that's where you find, say, evangelicals. It's actually where you find a lot of Catholics as well. But that's actually not what we see. Rather, a majority of Mormons actually take the civil liberties side of that question. On this particular question, they look a lot like Jews. Jews are also um, a group that takes the civil liberties position. Why would that be? I suspect it has something to do with the fact that both Jews and Mormons are small religious minorities who have suffered discrimination in the past, and therefore are very conscious of the need to protect civil liberties. You know, now, we should be clear that this is a question that just asks people's sort of general notions. It doesn't get into specific policies, so I don't know how Mormons you know, would feel about biometric scanning at airports and those sorts of things. But as a general ideological point, here we have another example where Mormons don't line up, actually, with others uh, who you might expect them to be uh, their political allies.
1: yeah. I'm sure that it has, to some extent, to do with our, our history. Uh, polygamy was such a big thing here. I mean, uh, you can go to almost any sermon in the 19th century and, that talks about that at all, and, and the, the pounding of the table about how the federal government should not be interfering with our private right to worship as we please. And later, unfortunately, I think for some Mormons, uh, the same was true of the black Issues, uh, People were protesting against BYU and other places because they perceived Mormons to be racists, and, and Mormons were saying, leave us alone, we have the right to do what we want. And today, it probably relates equally to the homosexual issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't you think that's kind of part of this whole thing? Oh,
0: definitely, and I, I think it also reflects a libertarian streak within mm-hmm. uh, Mormonism. Um, and so, if you are you know a strict libertarian then you ought to take the position of civil liberties over uh, uh-huh. national security. Now, in other groups, that doesn't always work out, actually, mm-hmm. but within Mormonism, we do see it. What about,
1: in general, the religiosity uh, of different these different groups? Uh, how How do Mormons stack
0: up against the others? By pretty well any measure that we have of personal religiosity you know just a five dollar word that means your level of religious commitment uh, at least as expressed in your in your behavior and the stuff you do you know whether it's attendance at religious services whether it's if you read scripture outside of services if it's whether you pray outside of services if it's if you give money to your um Religion, if you volunteer for your congregation, anything like that, Mormons just swamp everybody else. Much more likely to attend church, much more likely to give money, much more likely to volunteer. Um, and that is just really striking because it's not that they're a little more likely, it's that they're a lot more likely across the board. The only group that really comes close to Mormons for some of these measures would be black Protestants, is another very religious group. Um, but even there, you would find that Mormons are, are more likely to uh, to do these various things, even than this other highly religious group.
1: It's kind of ironic, in a way, because I remember very clearly talks that Ezra Taft Benson gave at BYU back when I was attending there in the '60s, and how he linked the whole civil rights movement to uh, to communism, this godless, atheistic. Uh, Thing. And, and, and so I think as, as a young Mormon, I had a tendency to think, well, gee, blacks must be godless and atheistic if that's the group that's sort of running them now. But that, that's clearly not the finding that you had. I mean, and it's quite the contrary,
0: right? Uh, correct. The, uh, the, the black church stands as you know, one of the most religiously vital organizations uh, in America to this day. And of course, as I think I mentioned earlier, many leaders of the civil rights movement and not just the famous ones so we all know that Martin Luther King was a religious leader before he was a a civil rights leader Uh, but if you look at sort of the next level down and even maybe three levels down much of the civil rights movement came out of black churches and much of the, uh, the work that was done the civil disobedience and the rallies and the boycotts they were organized in churches because that was the organization, the institutional infrastructure that African Americans had uh, because they'd, again, been denied access to so many other things.
1: Now, in terms of your measures of religiosity, and again, we're not talking about how good someone is in their heart, but rather this these outward manifestations of the groups that you studied. There's one group that's kind of the very least uh, likely to be perceived as religious. And what's that? Group that's most likely the, the, to be the,
0: the least like the least religi- religious. Uh, well, by many measures, it would be the Jews, <laughs> and that's actually um, kind of a nuanced point because, in some respects. Judaism is a different kind of faith tradition than others in, a, in America. Because uh, while we speak of religion as a matter of choice and preference, um, that's a little less true, maybe a lot less true for Jews, where it's as much an ethnicity as it is a religion. It's really hard to stop being Jewish. Yeah, Frankly, it's hard to become a Jew as well, but it's much harder to stop being Jewish. Mm-hmm. And so what you find within the American Jewish population is uh, many Jews who participate in the rituals of Judaism they might belong to a synagogue, they might celebrate the High Holy Days and engage in other you know, aspects of their Jewish culture. But it doesn't have an explicitly or overtly religious content. It's more an expression of ethnicity. Um, a wonderful example of how Jews differ in how they think about their religion from many other Americans, especially Christians, uh, actually came in our uh, Ethnographies in American Grace I mentioned that one of our congregations we highlighted was a synagogue in Evanston, Illinois. It's a Reformed Jewish synagogue, so that's the more liberal wing of Judaism. And the story goes that a group of of members of this synagogue met with um, a group of uh, people of other faiths, Catholics and and Protestants, and sort of an ecumenical, let's get to know each other sort of thing. And at one point in this uh, little workshop, People at each table, and the tables were mixed religiously. People were supposed to talk about how they felt about their religion, and the Protestants in the room, even the Catholics, they were very comfortable with this. That what their religion meant to them was all a matter of how it, you know, the, what they believed and what their feelings were, and the Jews just had a very difficult time getting their brains around that. That wasn't the vocabulary they had. Instead, the Jews would come up with, you know, the various. Practices that they would follow—that's what defined them as Jews, not their personal conviction that this, these things are true, in the way a Mormon might put it, for mm-hmm. example. But you know, others use that kind of language too. But rather, these are the things we do as a matter of expressing our culture. <laughs> Apparently, one of the things
1: they do is uh, they name their children Morris because. It's, it's almost comical but I get regular mailings from my local Jewish synagogue inviting me to their, their activities and I can think of no reason for that other than the fact that my first name is Morris and that is a, a well-known Jewish name as well. And I should go sometime because I'd actually be interested in it. Another issue that or another thing that Mormons are kind of a little different than the rest of the world is in how much uh, volunteering we do. And, and I was interested to have you compare not just the volunteering that we do by going to church and serving whatever our regular calling is, but volunteering outside of church as well.
0: Yeah, one of the interesting things that we find uh, when we study um, religions in general, but this applies, uh, you'll see in a moment, specifically to Mormonism, is even though you might think that people who are busily engaged in volunteering within their church or within their congregation, so synagogue, mosque, whatever, that that would suck up all their time and mean that they do less volunteering in their community. Well, it turns out that's not the way the world works at all. It's quite the opposite, that people who are busily engaged in things at church are also busily engaged in things outside of church. So the old saying that if you want something done, ask a busy person, it turns out to be true. Well, for Mormons, this holds, even though Mormons have this extremely high rate of volunteering uh, within their church, it nonetheless does not apparently keep them from being involved in their community. Now, I want to caution um, folks as I as I make that point, because I've said this to many Mormons, and I've had lots of pushback, and people have anecdotes about so-and-so who you know used to be the PTO president, and then she became the Relief Society president and had to give up the volunteering in school. So obviously, there are going to be you know, individual exceptions to that. But in general, this is what we find. And much of the reason for that lies in the explanation for why religious folks are so civically engaged and that's because our data show of the social networks that are formed in religious congregations people get involved in stuff when they know other people who are involved in stuff and when they feel a sense of trust and reciprocity and a belief that they ought to be civically engaged well you find that within mormonism in spades Mm -hmm. and so that's reflected in our data and i think that's an important message that mormons should keep in mind Mm -hmm. the sort of the
1: last thing i want to talk about in our in our podcast is issues relating to Mormon cohesiveness, uh, how the world views Mormons, how we view ourselves. Before I get to that though, uh, just because I want to make sure I, I do cover this, this is sort of a general question and maybe you don't even have an answer, but was, what would you say, is was there anything as you did your Faith Matters survey and as you wrote this book, American Grace, that kind of most surprised you about the findings?
0: That is a good question. Um, I think there were a number of things, actually, that came out as surprising. And it was interesting that things that I found surprising were sometimes things that my co-author did not, and vice versa. One, however, that I think we did find surprising is actually how accepting most Americans are of other religions. Because we went into this thinking of religion as, as very much a divisive force. We're political scientists, so we sort of, sort of see the world through a political lens, and certainly in our politics— religion divides us but in almost every other aspect of American life religion doesn't or doesn't now maybe it once did but it doesn't now so that was a surprise I think there are a few other things that were surprising Um, we were aware of how much religious switching there is or that there is religious switching in America I think the extent of it came as a surprise um, to us and when we looked at the patterns where you see the switching where you don't all of that was just a really fascinating area to study and frankly there's a lot more to know about it but we've begun to make a little headway have you been able to
1: determine to what extent there is religious switching involving mormons both in i mean we always hear about the missionary program mormons into the church so we know about that but it, were you able to get any sort of statistics about the outflow of Mormons and whether that's increasing, decreasing? We,
0: well, here's what we know. Um, again, while we have a large survey, we are limited in what we can say about um, the smaller groups, so Jews and Mormons, because we don't have that many to begin with. So when you begin to subdivide them into young and old, or you know, Utah or not Utah, or rich and poor, you, you just get to a really small number, and you can't really say anything about them with any confidence. But Uh, when we look at Mormons as a whole and examine their retention rate is the way we speak of it that is those who stay with the faith after having been raised in the faith so who don't defect in Mormon language don't go inactive or take their names uh, from the roles of the church the LDS retention rate is actually higher than most other traditions the only group that would be higher than Mormons or Jews and that's a complicated one as I said because it's hard to stop being Jewish <laughs> yeah. so the retention rate is high in our data it's only about 60% however uh, which means that over the course of a young Mormon's lifetime 40% of them at some point leave the church or cease to think of themselves as being Mormon. That doesn't mean they don't come back, of course, but at any given point in time, that's what the the numbers suggest. Um, so it's sort of a good news, bad news situation. You can put, you know, the Mormons in comparison to other groups and say, well, you know, Mormons are doing quite well. On the other hand, I think most people would say, wow, if we're losing, you know, two out of every five, that seems to be a pretty high uh, attrition rate. Yeah.
1: And, you know, I think there's a a demographic factor that is influencing that uh, in modern days as opposed to more ancient. I mean, certainly 19th century or early 20th century, most Mormons lived in Utah. If you sort of defected from the church as a youth, it's very possible that your own children, as they grew up because they lived in a Mormon community, and were probably nominally Mormons, might end up marrying a a Mormon spouse and therefore coming back into the church. And so you'd have posterity that might be in the church, might be out of the church. But as more Mormons live outside of the Utah, Idaho corridor, I think as children leave the church, perhaps they're more likely to marry spouses who are not Mormons at all. They don't have the, the Mormon influence. And so that posterity is less likely, perhaps, to come back into the church than earlier. Would you agree with that? Yeah,
0: and in so many ways, um, Mormonism faces a double-edged sword. So, on the one hand, you see defections from Mormonism because being a Mormon is a matter of choice, and so therefore you can you can stop being a Mormon or you can stop thinking of yourself as a as a Mormon. And probably everyone who's listening to this can think of someone in their own lives who fits that. Uh, description. Now, the downside of that is defections. The upside of that is when someone has made a conscious choice to be a Mormon, it means that once they are inside the tent, they're actually quite likely to be highly engaged in the religion. Mm -hmm. And um, it seems like in Mormonism, the leap from going outside the tent to inside the tent really is a big shift in someone's life. So those who are inside do a lot compared to those who are outside. In other faiths, the lines are a little blurrier, actually. So in Catholicism, you have far more Catholics who are truly nominal Catholics. They continue to think of themselves as Catholic. They'll describe themselves that way, but play no, no role in the church. Mm-hmm. In Mormonism, the lines seem to be much starker. You're either in or out.
1: Well, that, and that was certainly... My experience, and I'm sure most people who've ever served a mission outside the country, I was in Norway and everybody, you knock on their door, I belong to the Statshik, the state church, uh, the Lutheran church, but very, very few of them would ever show their face inside the door. Maybe that's the good thing about America and maybe one reason why we're so religious, there are so many choices. Mm No, I think that's that's definitely And when they go to a religion, it is a choice. Tell me about, you're working on an interesting project, I know, your next book. What's that going to be?
0: Well, um, along with Quinn Monson at BYU and John Green at the University of Akron, I am busily writing a book about Mormons and American politics. Now, as we're speaking, it is September 2012. If we were smarter, if I was as smart as Matt Bowman, for example, (laughs) we would have our book done and out right now. But nonetheless, we are uh, working away on this. One of the nice features of contemporary social science and the the rise of the internet is that uh, we are now able to do surveys of small groups like Mormons in a cost-effective way that we really couldn't do in the past. And so the the book will actually um, have data specifically on Mormons. And it's kind of split into two parts, so... Part one is what Mormons are like, describing Mormons sociologically and politically, and then the second part is how other Americans perceive Mormons, and we've published a bit of work on that, and that's that's an interesting question, because um, Mormons definitely have some challenges ahead in being widely accepted among other uh, Americans. On the other hand, the reason that they may not be so well accepted is because they're distinctive, and it's that distinctiveness that also feeds the vitality Mm -hmm. of their religion. Well, that, that, that sounds like a fascinating book, and I'm going to
1: certainly be looking forward to uh, to getting a copy when it comes out. And, and that kind of segues into what I'd like to close off the podcast on, and that is this uh, issue of Mormon's distinctiveness. I think you asked the question in one of your surveys about whether you view yourself as a peculiar
0: people in the biblical sense, Right. We did. Um, This is sort of a whimsical question, but uh, since that phrase is often used uh, within Mormonism, we wanted to see just if your average rank-and-file Mormon resonated with it, and it turns out they do. An overwhelming majority, something like 80% of Mormons say, yes, actually, the term a peculiar people does indeed describe me. But but I just want to ask you a question about that, because... It's one thing to think, "Oh
1: yeah, I'm like the biblical people. I'm a peculiar people, and the prophet has said that, so I'm going to go along with it." If you'd asked the same question but said, "Do you regard Mormons as weird?"
0: <laughs> what would have been your response? <laughs> That's a good point. I, uh, I although it's interesting that um, the phrase of peculiar people is used enough within Mormonism that it's not the term peculiar is not considered pejorative. Now, I think no. when, man, when many Mormons use it, I think it is tongue in cheek. Um, you know, it's sort of a wink-wink. But when we um, proposed this question to our, so Quinn Monson and I are both LDS and John Green, the third part of our team is not. When we uh, suggested this question, John was a little concerned, the non-LDS one on the team, that perhaps we were asking a question that might be kind of offensive. And we assured him, <laughs> oh, no, 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 this term is not offensive at all. Mormons like it, <laughs> and that's what we found. So that's just kind of a whimsical example. We have others that are maybe a little more telling about how Mormons really do think of themselves as distinctive and set apart from the rest of society. And in that sense, not quite right to call them an ethnic group, but they are an ethnic-esque group. You know, they have these sort of ethnic qualities to them in a way that uh, other religions often do not. I, I know
1: one of the things that we talk about is a sense of identity. Uh and how do Mormons stack up, do you think as, as compared to other people on that issue?
0: Well, um, we have a variety of ways to get at this question. and in every one of them, we find pretty clear evidence that Mormons do think of themselves as a distinctive group in, in a way that few others do. Um, again, Jews might be an example, some Catholics, but you know few others. I think most Methodists, most Presbyterians don't go around with Methodism or Presbyterianism as sort of their primary identity in their lives. But for many Mormons, it really is what defines them. And one of my favorite examples of this is this sharp contrast between how Mormons are perceived by everyone else. So we have these questions that we ask where people are given a scale from 0 to 100 and they're asked to rate in this case, religious groups, how do they feel about them? If you feel positive or warm, you give them a higher number. If you feel cool toward them, you give them a lower number. And Mormons don't look so good on this scale. They're not quite at the bottom. Muslims and atheists rank below Mormons, but uh, you know a lot of groups rank ahead. But then when you look at how Mormons perceive Mormons, no group in America, no religious group, no racial group, no ethnic group, has a higher regard, that is, likes their own group more than Mormons like Mormons. So Mormons like Mormons more than blacks like blacks, than Latinos like Latinos, certainly more than Jews like Jews or Catholics like Catholics. Why is that? Well, I think that's a reflection of this sense of ethnicness or this sense of being set apart, and frankly also probably a siege mentality, the idea that Mormons are picked on or discriminated against, and therefore we're going to rally together. Do you see that dichotomy
1: between how others view us and how we view ourselves as something of, of a double-edged sword?
0: Um, it is, like so much of this discussion of uh, Mormon distinctiveness, because, you know, on the one hand, the fact that Mormons are distinctive means that if you are Mormon, there's something here to believe in. There is a, you know, a, a, a definite theology there, there's a tight community, and these are things that people are often looking for in religion and in their lives. Um, But, of course, the flip side of that is the more distinctive you are, the more likely you are to engender suspicion and antagonism from others. So the challenge for modern Mormonism is to balance those two things together. So I often say to LDS audiences, look, if we want to be perceived more positively by the rest of America, Mormons themselves need to go make friends, close friends, with people outside of the faith. Well... There's probably a risk in that, right? There might be the story of American Catholicism. Catholics Mm -hmm. were once viewed with suspicion they really aren't now, and well, what changed? Well, Catholics assimilated into American society and probably lost a lot of the energy and and vigor within Catholicism as a result. I personally think we're a long ways away from that in Mormonism, so we could afford to make a few more friends.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it seems like uh, we, we could do that and probably a way of doing that, and I know... I think the church is trying to do this, or at least uh, it's, it's on the agenda, is to get Mormons more involved in community efforts. Uh, we have an active public relations program here, public affairs is what I think they call themselves, but they do try to sponsor interfaith mm-hmm. activities, and that's one way of uh, becoming friends with non-Mormons.
0: And it's, and it's tricky. It's tricky to do it, Um in the at the institutional level, you know, through a public affairs council, it's also hard to do it just on an individual level because, you know, we have a lingo in Mormonism, and so if you begin to talk with your neighbors who don't know the lingo, you have to spend all this time translating. They're not bishops; they're pastors, and what's a steakhouse, and what's <laughs> family home evening or seminary, and all these things. Um, and then you have all the complications of, you know, well, why aren't you accepting the wine that we're offering you at dinner? But I I hold that it is possible for Mormons to, um, to build those bridges, that these are not obstacles, these are opportunities. And frankly, um, uh, we can probably learn from what many Jews do. Um, many Gentiles who know um, Jews, they come to learn the Jewish lingo, they come to appreciate Jewish rituals and customs, and everyone seems to figure out a way to, of how to get along.
1: Yeah, I mean, Jewish words have become... Part of the American vocabulary
0: yeah, so so just just a little side note, I was a little disappointed uh, during the Republican National Convention when uh, Grant uh, Bennett, who spoke at the convention about his experiences serving with uh, Mitt Romney in a bishopric. that he didn't use the word bishop he Mm -hmm. kept referring to Romney as a pastor now I understand that and I think that's a perfectly fine term to use but at some point it would have been nice to make the transition from pastor to bishop so now bishop is the term we're going to use Yeah, and yeah it's used differently in Mormonism than in other faiths or in Catholicism in particular but people can learn that new word and what it means well
1: David I've really found this to be a fascinating interview and I hope that our listeners do as well and I sure appreciate you're doing this and taking the time.
0: Well, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about our, our work. And um, I will close, and I assure listeners of the podcast that I have not been instructed to do this. But I do hope that everybody listening, um, if you're not a subscriber to Dialogue, that you'll become one and then give 10 more subscriptions to all your close friends and family.
1: Well, thank you very much, Dave. I certainly do hope that uh, our readers who are not already subscribers to Dialogue will consider doing so. Go on to our website at www.dialoguejournal.com and uh, sign up if you haven't already done so. I think there's a real place for a well-edited, well-written, carefully written journal such as Dialogue that's been around for decades and understands what issues are important and how to present them. So with that, I'm going to sign off. Until next time, for our next Dialogue podcast, this is Morris Thurston. Goodbye.
0: You've been listening to the Dialogue Journal podcast series. We'd like to thank our guests today. For more Dialogue podcasts or to comment on this one, please visit DialogueJournal.com. Thank you.